This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast. In association with Line Trust. Specialist fund managers. Hello podcast fans and welcome to Total Football. This is your busy festive podcast for the busy festive period and we're hoping to supply you with all of your football analysis needs during this winter regnum between Christmas Day and New Year. On Total Football today we'll take a stats-led approach to the Premier League season so far in which we attempt to make sense of the pointy top end of the table, the crowded basement and the succulent middle. We'll speak to the man who told the world about Virgil van Dijk's move to Liverpool and find out if £75 million represents good value for a player who's been doing a convincing impression of someone who doesn't care about playing football. Plus, we'll delve into Wales, the country, and Swansea City, who have appointed an unexpected new manager in Carlos Carvajal. Is he the saviour or just a very naughty sack Sheffield Wednesday coach? But first, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by the author of Outside the Box and Statistician, Duncan Alexander. Duncan, how are Hi, you? Tom. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Feeling positive? I am feeling, yeah, surprisingly positive, <laughs> given it's midway between <laughs> Christmas and New Year. It's a tricky period. Duncan, you're one of the main voices behind the Opta Joe Twitter account. Uh, for those of us who don't live on social media, what is Opta Joe and how did it all begin? Opta Joe is our Twitter account. So we're Opta. Um, we've been around in different forms, I guess, for like 20 years. Um, but we you know, worked for a long time with all the uh, broadcasters, most of the you know, newspapers, etc. Um, but we've always been producing sort of short bits of uh, content. Um, and then Twitter came along and we went, oh, look, that sort of fits. And a few people went, no, you can't put stuff on Twitter because that's free. But it's actually good because people, uh, you know, got a name out there with fans um, and it allows us to kind of, um, you know, ascertain what people like and don't like because as you know people are quite quick on social media to let you know when they don't like stuff so, <laughs> um, but yeah we've got over a million followers now um, and it's kind of you know we kind of try and add a little bit of context uh, and a little bit of entertainment 
you know, during match days and, and other times. Yeah, absolutely worth a follow if you're not doing it already and outside the box. A perfect Christmas present for Christmas 2018, if I may say so. Uh, Back on the pitch now, one of the things we keep hearing from our reporters on Total Football is that they're running out of superlatives to describe this Manchester City team. Are you running out of numbers, Duncan? Uh, how do they match up to some of the great teams we've seen before in the Premier League? Yeah, they well, then it's not just the Premier League here. They, they're basically the best team, you know, currently. They're looking like they're going to be the greatest team in a single season ever seen in English football. Um, do you adjust that for two points for a win or is that...? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously... There's four main sides, really, that have historically been brilliant. So you've got Preston, you know, right back at the start. Um, you've got Tottenham in the early 60s, uh, Chelsea under Mourinho and, and now City. They have all kind of, you know, had amazing starts this season, you know, record points when you adjust it for three points of win. But this City team, unsurprisingly, um, uh, ahead of all of them. Um, and, you know, just look at the list of stuff at their top. They, you know, they've got the most goals. They've got the highest expected goals, which, as we know, is uh, an exciting new algorithm. Just, just give us a quick little explainer for expected goals for those of us who haven't quite grasped it yet. So expected goals is a basically a way of looking at how good a team's chances are. So rather than just saying this team has had, you know, 100 shots, but a lot of those shots could be from long range or, you know, not very good efforts, um, this basically quantifies how you know how likely that shot was to be a goal based on all the other shots we've got in our database. So it's a it's a kind of you know a slightly uh, better way of looking at um, you know who's the the best shooter and, and not as the case may be. So City are unsurprisingly on top of that. They've got the most possession. Um, they're averaging seventy two percent possession, which is just you know. Uh, extraordinary. That's just unprecedented in England. Presumably. Yeah, well, even it's higher than even Barcelona under under Guardiola as well. So they've got the most passes, they've got the most shots, um, and I guess perhaps the, the element of their game that people don't focus on as much is the defence. You know, they um, they've got the fewest goals conceded, they've got the the best xG conceded. So they're you know giving the upper opposition not very good chances, mainly because they have the ball nearly all the time so you know it's hard to shoot when you don't have the ball um, and they've got the joint, joint most clean sheets as well um, and you know Edison's obviously come in and, and done really well and they they sort of look infallible and you know they just keep winning as we know um, and if I was an Arsenal fan I would be quite scared that you know the invincible Arsenal's Invincibles record is not going to look as good if City just carry on like this. Um, and obviously Arsenal got a special gold trophy. I don't know if they'll have to give that back <laughs> and give it to City. But, um, you know, it, like, it is unlikely that they'll go the whole season unbeaten. But, you know, it'd be a brave man to bet against it at the moment. Do you think they'll ease off a little bit now that they do have such a lead and they have a decent chance in the Champions League? Stuff? Well, I mean, you know, theoretically they could still do the quadruple, be the first team to ever do that. So... When it gets busy in the spring, that's when obviously, you know, I mean, obviously the, the famous Arsenal team in 0304, the Invincibles did actually lose in all the cup competitions. So, uh, you know, I'm sure City fans would probably take a league defeat if they could guarantee four trophies. Obviously getting slightly ahead of ourselves here, but it seems to me that if they can continue this over the next few years, there might be a similar thing to what we've seen in basketball with the Golden State Warriors, where it's almost like they've redefined what's possible with the sport. Do you see that happening? There comes a point where the numbers that we expect from these great teams and these great players cease to cease to have any meaning anymore. Yeah, I think the whole 21st century in football has been a bit like that. You know, I remember as a kid, I think we'll come on to this later, but you know, you looked at someone like Dixie Dean and, and his goalscoring record looked ridiculous, but... Messi and Ronaldo have consistently 
you know, equaled or, or bettered that. Um, and we are in this era where, of, you know, domination where, you know, in Guardiola, I mean, I guess probably the biggest fly in the ointment possibly is that Guardiola doesn't really like to sort of, you know, stay at a club for too long. So, um, you know, City obviously spent a long time shaping their club and, and bringing in certain structures that, so, you know, to attract Guardiola to the club. Um, you wonder, you know, what they're doing to sort of future-proof it as well. Mm. Moving on to the rest of the current top four, Manchester United currently in second. How do they compare to previous Mourinho sides in the way that they're playing at the moment? They, I looked at this the other day and, and Mourinho is becoming ever more defensive in big games. So in his first spell at Chelsea, you know, he would he would set teams up to, to you know, be defensive on occasion, but generally was, was fairly positive. In his second spell at Chelsea, he was a little bit more defensive. But at United, you know, the, the away game at Liverpool this season, the home game to City, that isn't really the kind of, you know, inverted commas, United way. Um, and if it works, then fair enough, but it's not really working that well at the moment. And, you know, United's defence, they've, they've been massively um, helped by De Gea this season. You know, he's been far and away the best keeper and he's kept them in games obviously the Arsenal match they won which was you know sort of ridiculous uh, game and outcome really but I I don't think that their position is tenable I think that they've got a quite high chance of dropping out of the top four um, obviously they haven't finished in the top four for a while um, and yeah I think that the next few months could be quite tricky Are they making you as sad as they seem to be making Jose Mourinho? Not particularly, no. I'm, I'm coping quite well. But yeah, I think they, uh, you know, I think you look at the other teams around them, Spurs are hitting form, you know, Liverpool scoring a lot of goals, Chelsea, you know, the reigning champions are probably the best team at being able to grind out results. I think those three, you know, could and probably will all overtake United. On Chelsea, Conte seems to have spent most of the season griping about how they need more players. But it's hard to see where they would strengthen in that team at the moment. Where, who would you target if you were Conte in January? I guess, I mean, a striker probably. I mean, the thing with Chelsea, they've been very reliant on their defenders for creativity. Um, Alonso's got the most goals as a defender since the start of last season. And Azpilicueta's got the most assists in the you know, same time period. So, you know, that's obviously a sign of a very uh, a good team that, you know, works quite well together. But, you know, if Morata's not there, I don't think um, uh, Conte really trusts the rest of the squad that much. What about Liverpool currently in fourth? We'll get to Van Dijk a little bit later, but uh, this is an attack at Liverpool that would be getting a lot more praise, even more praise than they have had in any other normal season without City, right? Yeah, I mean, they almost rival City in terms of attack. Obviously, the defensive issues at the start of the season have hampered them, but if you know, since they lost at Wembley heavily to Tottenham, they've actually been one the best defensive team in, in the league. So they seem to have sorted that out. Obviously, they've just gone out and spent, you know, a good part of £100 million on a defender. So uh, theoretically, that should help them as well. Um, I think the key thing and the difference this season with Klopp is that he's rotating a lot more. So Liverpool have made 20 more uh, changes to their starting level than any other team in the in the league this season. You know, the, the Fab Four don't actually, you know, play to, if the, if it is the Fab Four it's more Abbey Road era than Hard Day's Night because they're <laughs> not Preston. yeah they're not actually on the pitch much at the same time but you know he can rotate for the first time and I think that's where keeping Coutinho was was a key thing because you know if if they didn't have Coutinho they would be a lot more reliant on the you know on a, on a smaller group of attackers um, and now they can obviously bring back um, Lalana as well so it looks pretty good but it's you know we'll see whether this rotation keeps them fresher in the new year 
Spurs just outside the Champions League places at the moment. Harry Kane wins the giant golden calendar for ending 2017 with the most goals, 56 in all competitions, more than Messi and Ronaldo, of course. Where do you come down, Duncan, on the great measuring things in years debate? I'm not a massive fan of it, to be honest. I mean, it, I saw a quote from uh, Chris Sutton saying that um, he never thought that Alan Shearer's record would be beaten, but I'm fairly convinced he didn't even know it was a record until about a week ago. So, uh, yeah, I mean... It, it's kind of a search for, for more things and we're as guilty as anyone of, of kind of coming up with these things. And it, I guess it is a, uh, you know, a relatively interesting way of looking at it, but ultimately football comes in seasons. But it is, it's been a good year for Kane, definitely. I just think I want all of the Harry Kane is brilliant content that I could possibly have, frankly. I think it's just, uh, it's just such a delight to be living in a time when this, you know, he looked for all the world a one season wonder and to just see him continue to do it. I'm not a Spurs supporter, but there's something very enjoyable it, about that. Yeah, it's kind of strange. It's it's kind of crept up, I think. it's It's been a long time since England's had a sort of bona fide world-class attacker um, and he's kind of I was talking to someone yesterday and saying how if he continues this and does become a you know a world great in the next sort of half decade he he you know he wasn't fancied at the start of his career he went on loan to a lot of lower league clubs he must be the only player to ever start that slowly to reach these heights and it's, it's almost like he's not 10 out of 10 at anything but he's 8 out of 10 at every single aspect of football and that you know, that is a kind of domination that he can do of a game. Maybe so. that's why he's taking so many corners for England. Uh, moving on to Arsenal, can't really see them getting into the top four on current form. Stasis seems to be the thing that their supporters complain about a lot, but they've at least been involved in some exciting games this season. Uh, have they changed much, do you think, in how they've approached games this year? Not really. I mean, obviously they've, you know, relied a bit more on um, Lacazette obviously coming in. Uh, you know, Giroud being injured over Christmas will probably hurt them a bit. Obviously, we're recording this ahead of the the Palace game, which could be tricky for them, I think. Um, and they, they, yeah, it's just sort of frustrating groundhog day a bit for Arsenal. Um, and, and I guess the big uncertainty is whether Ozil will stay, whether Sanchez will stay. Um, you know, over the last ten years, every year or every two years, a key Arsenal player has left, and you know, they kind of it's one step forward. One and a half steps back, usually. In that group below the challenges for the Champions League places, you've got Everton emerging a little bit now under Sam Allardyce, unbeaten in seven in the league. Do you think they'll achieve their seventh place destiny at the end of the season, despite the horrible start under Koeman? Yeah, I mean, obviously last year they were massively marooned in seventh, miles behind the top six, but, you know, miles ahead of everyone else. I think, you know, it's kind of between them, Watford and Leicester in this kind of semi-interesting (laughs) mid-table battle, but... You know, it's kind of do you back Allardyce's uh, British ways or Marco Silva and Claude Puel representing, you know, the the continent. So, uh, yeah, I think Everton, you know, he's done what he always does. He's made made them hard to beat, but they have probably lost something going forwards at the moment. But, you know, for me, the big thing with Everton this season has been how good Rooney's been. Um, You know, I didn't have him to score 10 goals in the league before Christmas and, and he has. So, you know, it's good. From 7th to 12th, you've got Everton, Burnley, Leicester, Watford, Huddersfield, Brighton. All of those have had spells of looking quite good and like putting runs together. Do you think it will continue in that vein for the rest of the season where we'll have these little moments of sporadic brilliance from these teams? But Or is there going to be one or two that emerge and prove they can be consistent? Well, I think Burnley are the most interesting because obviously they've been up you know, in the top four at points and you know all the stats, all the numbers point to the fact they shouldn't be up there. You know, they have 
they don't score many goals. Their sort of points to goals ratio is ridiculous. Um, they're the lowest team on XG, so they essentially create the least good chances of any team in the Premier League this season. Yet they're you know comfortable. Um, and same at the back, you know, the only other keeper that comes close to uh, to De Gea in you know kind of match-winning performances is Pope. So it's easy to say the bubble will burst, but it it just doesn't seem to. Is so. Pope better than Heaton? Do you think? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know they've been quite lucky with keepers or, or you know well planned but um yeah th- i mean a lot of me wants to say they're going to fade but i've been saying that for a while and they haven't so we'll see mm. moving on to the relegation battle uh, how should we be reading this this year dunk it's shaping up to involve a few more teams than normal is there anyone you're especially scared for down at the bottom well swansea look like they're in trouble mm. um brighton obviously need to Although they're fairly high on the table, that they need to sign a striker. You know they can't really score. Um, I mean, it's pick three from any of them really. I think what's interesting now is this is at this stage of the season. This is the first time in Premier League history where we've had seven teams averaging under a point per game, which kind of shows that the top, you know, the big six are basically you know always dominating the, the lower team. So we are we do have two divisions essentially, um, which is I guess for you know the quality of of competition is not a good thing. But in terms of um, an exciting relegation battle, it it should be pretty good. I think. I know you touch on this in the book, but what do you think makes an exciting Premier League season? Do you think it's do you think we're shaping up for one of those as things stand, or or would you like it to be a bit more one or two? Absolutely exceptional teams and, and a little is, bit closer below them. Yeah, I think this is shaping up to be a memorable Premier League season, one that will be referenced a lot in the future. Did you remember the season that City did XYZ? I don't think it's going to be the most exciting, purely because the jeopardy will, will go out fairly early. I mean, obviously, I guess at 13, 14 would, would be a good example of a very exciting one. Um, similarly, 11, 12, with obviously the last day and the City comeback towards the end. But, you know, I point out in the book that um, there's a ninety-six, ninety-seven is statistically the closest Premier League season, and yet everyone who remembers that uh, season is like it was rubbish. So you know, sometimes an evenly matched division isn't what people want. They want kind of um, lots of goals, and I think thirteen, fourteen with three teams, you know, smashing goals in is, is what you want, really. Going back to the bottom of the table, we'll get into Carlos Carvajal in a little bit more detail later, but. David Moyes and Roy Hodgson proving that changing a manager is always a great idea, right? Is, is the same going to happen for Pardew at West Brom? So this is where I think Hodgson made a really good decision because if you looked at the numbers at the start of the season, even when Palace were rock bottom, you know, couldn't score, their numbers were really good. So if you looked at their expected goals, they were actually above Chelsea at points early in the season. And they're still, I think they're seventh now. Only the big six have, have created better chances than Palace. And they're pretty good guy at the back as well. So, Do you think Hodgson did look at expected goals? I suspect he didn't. But I do think that managers like Hodgson, like Allardyce, um, kind of understand expected goals without understanding expected goals, if you know what I mean. They kind of, you know, part of what makes them a good manager is they can sense when teams are probably underperforming that they can get an extra 5-10% out of them. Um, so I think the Palace job was a very good one to take. And, you know, Hodgson's kind of proving that at the moment. You know, Palace are, are looking a lot stronger and I, I don't think they'll be any tr- in any trouble at all. West Brom probably are in more trouble, again, because of the, you know, we saw on Boxing Day the, the, the chances they're missing are, are fairly guilt-edged. But, you know, if, the, if you create chances, that will... You know, you will improve at some point. It's interesting what you say about expected goals. Do you think the reason it's met with such hostility is that it's effectively giving a name and a method to this thing that we feel we should just be able to see with our eyes and people are mistrustful of that somehow? 
Possibly. I think within football, you know, it's kind of if you can quantify uh, stuff that people can spot, you know, experts can spot, then that democratises the kind of process a little bit. Um, It's frightening if you're old, like without wanting to be (laughs) patronising. If you've been in the game and you've made your life out of it and you've played... That feeling of I'm being replaced by a clever machine is is real. Well, yeah, the idea that something you thought was innate to you and your understanding can kind of be synthesised is, I guess, yeah, scary. But, I mean, I guess that's something that people will face increasingly in a lot of sectors (laughs) over the next decade or two. I, for one, welcome our new podcast, Robot Overlords. We have attracted a number of questions from the podcast fans for you, Duncan. I will put them to you now. Cheers on a sixpence from the world of Twitter says, I would be interested in an analysis of Dixie Dean's scoring records. Uh, He, of course, is constantly being compared to Harry Kane. What can you tell us about old Dixie? Yeah, we briefly mentioned him earlier, but I mean, Dixie Dean was this kind of figure when I was a kid that was this, you know, mythological kind of person who scored 60 goals. I always feel sorry for George Campbell, who scored 59 the season before, and must have been walking around going, well, no one's going to beat that for a long time. It's like, sorry, George, <laughs> 12 months on, mate. Um, but, but in a way, Dixie Dean's goal scoring record in this era of Messi and Ronaldo doesn't look as good anymore. He he didn't score a goal per game, which Ronaldo and Messi pretty much do. Um, the 60-goal season is obviously pretty good, but a couple of years later, Everton went down. Um, he stayed with them because in the 1930s, loyalty was uh, was a you know bigger commodity. Um, but he only actually scored over 30 goals in three seasons, which is, you know, he, he scored a lot of goals, but he wasn't amazing. He... His last England appearance was when he was 25 um, and is sort of, you know, blighted by injury later on. So, you know, Kane, if he stays in England, could, you know, could theoretically target Shearer's uh, record. And uh, Dixie Dean's, just because of the number of goals in that era, is probably unlikely to be beaten. But, you know, in context, I think Kane has got every chance of being as good uh, and will definitely play and score more goals for England than Dean did. Exciting stuff. Loyal podcast fan Ben Clemson asks, in football, which position on average has the fewest and most touches of the ball in a game? Well, this will depend slightly on the way the team sets up, but generally either a strikers or goalkeepers will have the fewest. Um, obviously, we're now in an age of goalkeepers now as an auxiliary 11th outfielder, so that changes things a bit for certain teams. Um, but you'll often, you know, you'll see some games where a striker will have, you know, 10, 15 touches. Um, so generally when it's one up front? Yeah, or they're you know being heavily dominated. And you know, occasionally you'll see a striker who doesn't get a touch in the opposition box. Uh, conversely, obviously, central defenders and central midfielders tend to, to dominate uh, in terms of touches. But it's, you know, it's that old thing of, you know, it's all very well having a lot of touches in the centre of pitch, but it's, it's what you do with them that counts. Powerick McCrum asks, which footballer scored the most Premier League goals without ever scoring one with his weaker foot? That's a good question. Um, so I guess you can spin this two ways. It's whether you want, if it's how you deal with headed goals, really. Oh. So you know, if you want to include them as a kind of neutral option, um, then we track right side of head versus left side of head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, they wouldn't that be flipped round or something? Oh, brain. I don't know. Don't know. I'm not I'm a getting brain too deep surgeon. here. Anyway, so if we look at left-footed players, Chris Brunt has scored 21 left-footed goals and three headers, but no right-footed goals. So pretty good. But if you want to go purely left-footed, then Stuart Pearce, our old friend, has got 20. Obviously, he scored in the first division as well. He might have scored with his right foot, but I don't have that data. But he scored 20 left-footed goals in the Premier League, and that was it. Just just left-footed all the way. Um, right-footed, um, we can either go, if we include headers, Benito Carboni, the man who semi-bankrupted Bradford, 34 <laughs> right-footed goals and one header. Um, 
perhaps he, you know, his contract would have halved if he scored a left-footed goal. We'll, we'll never know. Um, but if you just want to go purely right-footed, then Chabi Alonso is just 14 with his right foot. Finally, Jan Hoppus asks, what percentage of penalties are scored when they are to complete a hat-trick compared to the average? My strikers always duff them on Football Manager. Do they go in more when they're important, e.g. equalisers and winners than not? OK, well, the, the, the crux of this question was a little bit complicated for my computer and me to, to candle in the in this strange midpoint between Christmas and New Year. But I can say that another kind of age-old debate about penalties is whether a player should take them or not when they've won the penalty. You know, often you see managers say, uh, you know, this player shouldn't have taken the penalty because he'd won the, won the penalty. And we have a club rule that says that shouldn't happen. It can reveal, excitingly, that 73% of penalties in the Premier League in the last, I think, six or seven seasons, have been scored when a player who was fouled took the penalty. 73%, not bad, but, you know, not quite three quarters. That goes up to 81% when it's taken by someone else. So if you support a team and you see your striker bundled over and then getting up to take the penalty, shout, no, don't do that. I have compelling evidence (laughs) to suggest you shouldn't do that and see what he does. Do you have a spreadsheet we can print out and laminate for fans and maybe give it out outside? I'm happy stadiums? to provide many laminated spreadsheets, yeah. <laughs> Even ones, you know, let's go with stuff like the the only players to take a penalty with both feet in the penalty, in the Premier League. Um, Obafemi Martins and Bobby Zamora, which I have deep respect for. To you know, So they've definitely taken a penalty with their weaker foot, which is ballsy. Michelle Owen is a familiar voice on Sky Sports and the Premier League. She joins us now to talk Swansea City. Michelle, Carlos Carvajal is the new man in charge at the Liberty Stadium. What do you make of his appointment? I was initially sort of surprised because you think, given where they are, they'd want a man with Premier League experience, perhaps. And obviously, Carlos Carvajal doesn't have that yet. Uh, I thought he did well with Sheffield Wednesday last year to come to the playoff semi-final, obviously, where they lost to Huddersfield. But yeah, it was an initial reaction of surprise. And also, he decided to leave Sheffield Wednesday. Was he perhaps chatting to Swansea before? I'm, I'm not saying he was. It's just something that crossed my mind. I'd be interested to see how he does initially, whether they get that new manager bounce. But are they already preparing for life in the championship? That was my first initial thought. The bald facts of it are he was sacked by Sheffield Wednesday on Christmas mm. Eve. That can't play well with the Swansea fans. How do they feel about it, do you think? I'm not sure. From what I've seen on social media, I think a few people are a little bit confused by the appointment. I'm not sure about how it was left with Sheffield Wednesday either, because I saw on Sky Sports News that it was mutual. But then again, they might just be saying that, might they, Sheffield Wednesday. I think the Swansea City fans, from only from what I've seen briefly in the last couple of hours, they're saying, OK, well, are we just resigning ourselves to the fact that we're in the championships next season? Is that what we're preparing for already? But, you know, the Swansea City way is, is to play football that's what the Swansea City way was at least I think a lot of fans felt that when Gary Monk took charge that changed a lot and since then they haven't got that back obviously the Bob Bradley experiment didn't work Paul Clement steered them to safety but he couldn't get them playing this year but I think ultimately the calibre of player at Swansea City probably isn't enough at the moment when Paul Clement was there he was saying you know what he's going to do in the January transfer window he does want to spend money and he seemed sort of in every press conference I did with him he seemed very adamant you know that he'd have that time but obviously that hasn't happened so will Carlos Carvajal be given the funds now as well do you think they've still got that money from Sigurdsson and Dorente in the bank haven't they 
I think it's quite interesting as well that they've appointed a, a manager generally known for attacking football because I think that was one mm. of the key things that, um, you know, a manager, like we talked earlier about Allardyce or, or Pulis, they come in and improve a team's defence. For Swansea's defence is yep. not great, but it's not terrible. Uh, they yeah, exactly. they kind of need, as you said, to go back to their free-flowing football of, of the olden days. So, yeah, this seems, you know, I don't think that just because he's been sacked by a championship team that they're, it means that they're preparing for the championship. You know, if, if he ticks the boxes that the board think that their team needs then you know we've seen a lot of managers come in foreign managers in the last four or five years in the Premier League and fans you know be aghast remember Southampton when um, Pochettino came in were were furious but you know they turn out to be quite good yeah definitely and like you say Swansea City's problem hasn't been defending so much okay their defence isn't great but if you look at it up until a couple of weeks ago they hadn't actually conceded that many they were in among the likes of Liverpool sort of goals conceded you're right it's the attacking play and he is known for his attacking play Carvajal and they haven't been scoring enough goals at all they've scored hardly any this season and you know Tammy Abraham he's, he's a good player but you know this is his first experience in the Premier League he's getting very little service you've got to look at the players they've signed as well is little Joaquin Mester in the middle is he the sort of calibre of, of player they need right now you know he's come from Las Palmas a lower division of the Liga side is he cut out for the Premier League yet I mean he's still settling in they haven't replaced the likes of Sigurdsson and, and Lorente and it'll be interesting to see if Carvajal's given that money in the window and to see how he fares in the Premier League. Messer and Carroll in the middle must be one of the shortest ever uh, Premier League. <laughs> Managed by Leon Britton as well. <laughs> tiny. Yeah, so. it's, it's a tiny midfield. Tiny. <laughs> <laughs> they do look a little bit doomed to me, Michelle. Do you see any way that Carver Howe oh, can uh, get, them, get them to safety from here? It's a tough one. I mean... From going down there and we get to speak to the players sort of week in, week out because they have to do these interviews in the middle of the week. And, you know, there's this message of of positivity and and unity and and what have you. And that was under Clement. If Carvajal maybe can get a really good quality midfielder in, but I mean, where are you going to get that midfielder from now? I mean, Swansea City are not an attractive proposition, are they? If you're trying to come into the Premier League right now, even if it's a player from abroad or whatever. It's hard to think off the top of your head who they're going to get in in the midfield to start creating things for them. They need a striker as well. Unless they do some spectacular business in the January transfer window, I can't see them staying up right now, to be honest. We should also talk Bristol City, Michelle. They knocked Manchester United out of the League Cup since our last episode. You were at Ashton Gate for that match and they're still flying in the league. Are they proving the worth of taking the Cup competition seriously, even if you are in the Championship? Well, they made nine changes a couple of rounds ago. It escapes me whether it was against Stoke or Watford, but they were facing Premier League competition early early on in the rounds and Lee Johnson was making all these changes and at that point I thought oh is he, is he taking this seriously but it showed at that point he had the depth in his squad to take on and, and beat these Premier League teams he played a very strong perhaps his strongest squad that he had at his disposal given injuries and things uh, on on that game against Manchester United they are taking it seriously but I don't know Manchester City is a big ask isn't it even with if Lee Johnson had a fully fit squad and all his best players at his disposal which he won't because he's got quite a number of injuries at the moment I can't see them I just can't see them beating Manchester City but you know a lot of people said Manchester United were poor on the night and things like that I saw things online saying Manchester United weren't this they weren't that but credit has to be given to Bristol City the way they played um that night was, was phenomenal. They were at it from the first whistle. They were in their faces. The atmosphere at Ashton Gate, I've never heard anything like that. And I've been going down there for sort of four or five seasons now. It, it was fantastic. But I think it might be just one step beyond them to get past Manchester City, to be honest. But they're doing so well in the league as well. And I'd be pretty 
surprised if they did not make the playoffs now. Good stuff. Look forward to that tie. All City Two Legs League Cup, sponsored by an energy drink. Thanks very much for joining us, Michelle. Cheers, Tom. Cheers. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Jeremy Wilson broke a story on Wednesday night which forced Liverpool to announce a new signing and Virgil van Dijk to pose in front of a Christmas tree holding up what looked like a child's Liverpool shirt. Jeremy, Southampton fans must be sick of their players moving to Liverpool, but will they be sad to see the back of Van Dyke? Um, I think a bit less so, given what's happened in the last six months. I mean, he was obviously a massive player for them before then, um, but he hadn't really played since uh, sort of January time last year, uh, this year, because he he had this operation and then he's come back. Um, he, he put in a transfer request. He played played for the first time in September but his form's been quite mixed and there's just been this feeling that this situation has hung over Maurizio Pellegrino there's obviously been other issues for the sort of pretty poor start to the season but that's I think the Van Dyke one has been part of it so no probably less than less so than others even though a lot of Southampton fans would say he was the best of all the, the signings that they've sold over the last three, four years when he was when he was playing at his peak. Um, so I suppose the big difference with the ones that have gone is just the size of the fee. You know, it's more than double the likes of Mane, Lalana, and all the rest. Luke Shaw that have that have uh, gone, gone to the mostly to the northwest in in recent years. So I suppose that that helps a little bit, although. It's obviously reflective just of a transfer market that's um, that's gone up and has become more and more inflated, or you know, or it, or maybe that is just the real price these days. I don't know. Yeah, seventy-five million pounds being paid from Liverpool. The deal looked completely dead after the events of last summer, and it looked like City were in charge uh, and going to make a deal happen this January. What happened to turn that around? Yeah, I think Liverpool were quite cute, really, about it all. They did. I mean, Southampton, I think you can exaggerate how upset Southampton were last summer. I think what they thought was it it all looked a bit disrespectful that a lot of stories came out saying that Van Dijk had decided to go to Liverpool when they hadn't even accepted a bid for him and they were intending to keep him for another year. And they, I think they felt that a sort of Premier League code of honour had been broken a little bit there. I don't think the fact that there might or might not have been direct or indirect conversations with with a player was probably the main issue from Southampton's point of view because the reality is that happens on a lot of transfers. You know, obviously people at Southampton understand that. I think it was just they felt it was a step too far for it to almost seem like some some media were announcing that it was going to happen um, before they'd even when when they had made a decision at board level to keep him for another year. I think they felt that that was that was had, had sort of gone too far. Who who was to blame for those stories coming out or whatever? That's a, that's a, another another issue that I don't know the the answer to. But that that was where Southampton felt. So I think once Liverpool apologised um, and promised not to. Sort of try and disrupt him any in the, through the summer by making a formal bid, which which would then obviously make it more difficult for Southampton to try and reintegrate him for another year. I think once they backed off and apologised, I, I don't think there was a great deal of bad blood between the clubs at sort of executive level. Maybe some of the fans were upset with Liverpool, but I, I don't think it's. I think I think everybody knew knew the score really and got on with it. A City were interested, but 
didn't come in with the sort of bid Liverpool did. Put maybe wouldn't have expected Liverpool to have done that, really. But given that we're a week out from the transfer window and what happened, it was in the interest of everybody to get this done early so that Southampton could 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 try and turn their season around in in the January window. And obviously, Liverpool were keen to get it done, and Van Dijk were because they all wanted to to make this happen for you know, the last six months. Any sense of what Southampton might do with the money? Yeah, I mean, their priority, because of Charlie Austin's injury, their priority is an attacker. Um, so they're looking at various people. I don't think, I think their, their scouting network is quite extensive. So I've heard that um, the closest deal is someone in France, but I know that they're also looking at a loan with Daniel Sturridge, whether that could be done. Um, obviously, the World Cup sort of carrot for him might be a might be an issue but he doesn't even when he's he's sort of fully fit with that that attacking lineup that Liverpool have now got it's hard to see an obvious place for him I think they'll try and see if they can make a loan whether that's possible They're, they've looked at other people like Theo Walcott but I think wages will be an issue with some of those type of players um, and I think they're also trying to sort of go for some carry on what they've done really and try and seek out um, players who are on the up who who might you know might be sold on for huge fees. So I think Ryan Sessegnon at Fulham, someone that's of interest to all the the big clubs. But Southampton might feel they can sell the idea to him a little bit because um, he could obviously come in and play, have a good chance of playing regularly there. And I think at some point Manchester City have been interested in Bertrand for a while, and you wonder if that could happen maybe in the summer. But they want something to cover. Austin and and Sturridge is certainly an interesting one that they're looking at. I mean, whether what what Liverpool would would say on that, I don't know. Jeremy, you've done the impossible. You've wet my appetite for the January transfer window. Congratulations. Time for your hero of the week, and we are looking to Uruguay and striker Sebastian Abreu, who, aged 41, has set a new world record by joining his 26th professional club. He's moved to Audax Italiano from Puerto Montt. His nickname is El Loco, the madman, but his real first name, Washington, very sensible. And this is not your normal journeyman either. Abreu was capped 70 times for his country and is most famous for scoring the winning penalty against Ghana to send Uruguay through to the 2010 World Cup semi-finals. Heroic work. Duncan, when I say journeyman, who do you think of? Uh, I think of Trevor Benjamin, who I don't believe was ever called El Loco but at any point. <laughs> he might have been, I don't know. Um, the thing with journeyman is... Does it count? I mean, a lot of Trevor Benjamin's clubs were in non-league. He went to uh, Australia, I think. So it's it's where that you draw the line, really. Some of you know some players will end up. Steve Claridge ended up playing for anyone towards the end of his career. Um, but I I do a bit in the book actually about Trevor Benjamin when I tried to pay homage to him by travelling around all the clubs he played for. That was the initial plan. Then I kind of looked at the geographical spread and and just went with the uh, the five main league clubs he played for, which is quite Midlands based. It was it was a pleasant jaunt on FA Cup final day through the through the Midlands. But you can read about it in the book. What was the highlight? Possibly finishing at about nine o'clock after <laughs> nearly three hundred kilometres. It's quite. It's longer than you'd imagine between Cambridge and Peterborough. You did it in one day. Mm. I thought you did it on sort of different match no, days. No, went from Cambridge to Peterborough to Leicester to nearly to Coventry, but it got very windy at that point. Then to Northampton and then down a bit. So, for yeah. some reason, I want I, I want you to have done this alone. I was alone. Good. Yeah, well, pop, mate, I had a company for a little bit, but generally alone and with a lot of time to contemplate both Trevor Benjamin. And life itself. Wonderful stuff. Highly recommended. 
That's your lot for Winteregnum Total Football and we'll be back on your mobile listening device next Thursday, 4th of January. We will then return to our regular scheduled Sundays, every Sundays, just in time for your Monday morning commute. Contact me on Twitter at Tom with an H Gibbs if you want to wish me a happy new year. Do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a positive iTunes rating if you want to get your and my 2018 off to a flyer. Our theme tune is by Polvo by In Prism, the excellent album it comes from at mergerecords.com. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist fund managers.